Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Catherine E. Harold, an associate professor at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy and a faculty affiliate of the Indiana University Paul H. O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Catherine's written an engaging and important book entitled Delta Democracy, Pathways to Incremental Civic Revolution in Egypt and Beyond, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. And I'm delighted to welcome her to the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Susan, for having me. It's an honor to be with you today. So the 2011 Arab Spring protests seem to be a promising moment of democratization and liberalization. But the aftermath proved to be quite different with the outbreak of civil wars and the reemergence of authoritarian leaders. Uh, Delta Democracy argues that the public, those who make policy and everyone in between, need to look beyond the political action that captures headlines. And in your ethnographic research on Egypt's non-governmental organizations or NGOs, directs us to ongoing mobilization taking place at the grassroots level in civil society. Your extensive field research reveals the strategies that local NGOs use to cultivate democratic values and skills among everyday citizens. And you suggest that these strategies deployed by local NGOs may be more available and immediate than reforming national political institutions. The study not only increases our understanding of the grassroots mechanisms used to combat authoritarianism, it also serves as a playbook for U.S. policymakers as they make important decisions about the type of community organizations that they fund. And as you explain in the book, we might be surprised by which groups are helping make important changes in Egypt. Those normally not considered players in the political reform arena might actually be those doing the most work building the civil society that supports democratic reform. So before we dig into the findings of your remarkable book, I I really enjoyed reading this. Let me ask you a bit about your professional life and training and and how you came to write this book. You're, You're working at the intersection of many fields. So tell me how you ended up in Egypt, talking to leaders of grant-making foundations and development NGOs. (laughs) You're right, Susan. I do work at the intersection of many fields, and that is partially a result of my interdisciplinary training. Um, I hold a PhD in public policy that is grounded in political science, which means that I ask policy-relevant questions and frame those questions within comparative political science and international relations. But I also have a bachelor's in economics, and I've done master's level work in social policy and international business, um, that master's level work uh, having been done in Europe. So I bring an international focus and a very interdisciplinary focus to the questions that I ask and the approaches that I take. But also important to note is that prior to earning my PhD, I spent about five years um, studying, working in, and consulting to U.S. philanthropic foundations. And I arrived um, at Duke to undertake PhD research um, with some really critical questions about the role of private philanthropy in a democratic society. I was familiar with a body of literature that suggested that uh, foundations are private foundations are good for democracy because they bankroll a vibrant civil society. But I had seen behind the scenes um, and was skeptical. Uh, I, you know, we if we think about it, private philanthropy is made possible 
because of neoliberal economic policies that actually exacerbate wealth inequalities um, and allow the wealthy to amass more and more and more riches to give away. Um, and I also saw that foundations are really anything but transparent, uh, responsive, accountable to local citizens. So I really questioned this notion that private philanthropy is somehow um, great for, for democracy. But I didn't think that I could address that topic um, by studying foundations in the United States. They had emerged within and worked within an established democracy. Um, and so teasing out their contribution to democracy, I felt would be really difficult. So I planned a comparative approach. Um, and so I, again, I arrived at um, Duke in the, in the public policy school with some really critical questions about the role of um, philanthropy and private uh, philanthropic foundations in democracy. And, um, and it was my political science courses, really, that led me to focus on the Middle East. Wow, that's, uh, that's a great story. Um, not all of it is, uh, is in the introduction and in the acknowledgments, but some of it is. And I think that uh, um, you, you, I can hear in the book you answering these questions, and, and it is that sort of sense of skepticism um, about the entire fit of um, private philanthropy within the system that is it really makes you an, an incredible commentator on all of this. Um, you conducted over 100 interviews with leaders of philanthropic foundations, development NGOs, human rights NGOs, um, activists, academics, uh, leaders of international donor agencies, and uh you speak Arabic, but you did a lot of the interviews in English or using an Arabic translator. Explain a little bit about your interviewing, your sampling techniques, and, and the methodology that you used to, to write this book. Sure. Um, I spent about two and a half years uh, between the years of 2010 and 2017 in Egypt um, conducting interviews, conducting ethnographic fieldwork, basically. Um, I did conduct interviews, as you said. I also um, observed and participated in organizations' activities. Um, I first arrived in Egypt in January of 2010, actually exactly one year before the 2011 Arab Spring uprisings. Um, and at that point, my focus was primarily on local grant-making foundations that had emerged, um, contemporary foundations um, that had emerged since around 2002. Um, and, you know, I was curious, as I stated earlier, what these organizations' roles were in cultivating democracy. And I can talk a little bit about the theoretical framing of that um, separately. But during that early uh, time in the field, I mainly spoke with leaders of local development organizations and their funders, those local Egyptian foundations. Um, and it seemed very clear that these organizations were not quote unquote, promoting democracy. Um, but then the 2011 Arab Spring uprisings broke out. And so I quickly returned to the field and began speaking with a wide variety of leaders of civil society organizations. Um, I circled back to those local foundations, the development NGOs that they were funding, as well as spoke with leaders of hu lo local human rights organizations, international NGOs, international donor agencies. Um, I, I spoke with uh, activists. I went to protests, always, of course, staying to the back um, because it wasn't my role um, to be protesting, but, but was there to observe. And um, I just spent, as I said, uh, two and a half years um, talking with as many people in Egypt's civil society sphere that I could. Um, 
I mentioned the types of organizations that I did include in this study. It's also important to mention those that I didn't include. I did not include religious charities or Islamic NGOs. Um, A number of scholars have written entire books on these organizations, and I excluded them because they tend... They are not typical recipients or seekers of um, democracy assistance or democracy aid or aid for democracy promotion. Um, So this book really does focus on secular organizations, including local NGOs, international NGOs, and and different types of donors. Uh, And you're so clear about what you are doing and what others are doing. Uh, I very much appreciated that. You're you're working in a country in which many of the people that you're interviewing might be worried. I mean, the state security apparatus is attentive to organizers. How did you balance that? How did you reassure your interviewees and contacts? Um, You know, how did it affect your ability to do your research to be working in um, a regime that was undergoing such change? I think this is where ethnography becomes even more important. Um, you mentioned the issue of um, issues of security and also trust. So, the bulk of my fieldwork occurred between early 2011 and mid to late 2012, and during this period. Um, the context just rapidly changed. There was a period of euphoria, followed by a period of fear, intimidation, repression, etc. Um, from the start, I had to work hard to earn the trust of my interlocutors. Um, under Mubarak, and then um, also after those 2011 Arab Spring uprisings during successive transitional governments, um, there was always a culture of fear that permeated Egypt's civil society sector because of the government's historic crackdowns on civil society. Um, So to be asking questions related to the sector's role in promoting democratic political reform um, this this certainly had the potential to be very threatening to and dangerous for the organizations um, and the leaders with whom I was speaking. But by spending extensive time in Egypt, by using a process of snowball sampling, whereby um, I expanded my sample as um, interviewees suggested additional leaders within civil society to talk to, I was able to cultivate trust and move about in a um, in a relatively seamless way. Um, as I mentioned, the context was rapidly changing, and this is where ethnography also served me well. I originally entered the field with a fairly robust interview protocol that I quickly threw out because I realized that a lot of the questions I asked that, that, that I was asking um, were irrelevant. And also the questions I needed to be asking changed as the situation on the ground changed. Um, the security situation required uh, adaptation, of course. There were rumors of blacklists of foreigners. Um, my local friends told me that if I went to certain places, I would be kidnapped. Um, I do recall a particularly memorable train trip to Minya, where I arrived. I was to call my um, my interlocutor when I arrived. We were going to meet under the Vodafone sign, and before she could arrive, the security services arrived to ask me a few questions. So. It was a challenging time, but at the same time, anyone who knows Egypt and Egyptians also knows that Egyptians are some of the most warm and welcoming and helpful people on this earth. And so I really have to thank 
all of my interlocutors who, who did trust me and who did help me navigate the field during a very uh, difficult um, political time. So you, you mentioned changing your questions and your techniques. When you went to Egypt, you were trying to understand how philanthropic foundations operated in liberalized uh, autocracies. But is, is Delta Democracy the book you intended to write before you began interviewing? No. When I returned to Egypt in 2011, after my preliminary research in 2010, I expected that local Egyptian foundations and their development NGO grantees would not be players in the democracy promotion arena. My early conversations made it very clear that these organizations, and particularly the local foundations, were co-opted by the Mubarak regime. They were almost in bed with the Mubarak regime. Um, one staff member of a local foundation described her organization as being in cahoots with the Mubarak regime. The leaders of these organizations were primarily business people who had um, profited from a system of crony capitalism through which they traded their philanthropy, which funded the types of socioeconomic development um, activities that were prioritized by the Mubarak regime in exchange for business perks, perks such as monopoly rights, kickbacks, contracts, etc. And so when the 2011 Arab Spring uprisings broke out, I really didn't expect that these organizations would quickly transform themselves into um, democracy brokers. And in fact, that's what I was, that my early research in 2011 seemed to confirm that. As you noted, Susan, I said that I was asking the wrong questions. I was looking to see when I went back just after those, um, just after Mubarak's deposal, I was looking to see if local foundations and development NGOs were engaging in the types of activities that we tend to think of when we think of quote unquote democracy promotion. Were they monitoring elections? Were they um, funding human rights protection? Were they trying to reform national political institutions, the legislature, the judiciary, et cetera? And they weren't. And so therefore, I concluded early on that these organizations had just been so co-opted by Mubarak that they were either incapable of working to build democracy or that they were uninterested in bringing about democratic political reform. But as I continued my time in the field and as I spoke with more and more um, social change actors, I again realized that I was asking the wrong questions. First of all, the uprisings were not just about democracy. The uprisings were more broadly calls for human dignity, for political freedom, for social justice, for economic opportunity. And so by just asking about procedural democracy, I really wasn't asking relevant questions. The way that organizations were promoting democracy was very different from what I expected. The foundations, the NGOs did promote democracy, but they promoted a more substantive form of democracy than is typical of um, contemporary democracy promotion projects. You, you've already done some of this um, of kind of, of situating us in, in, in this culture of uh, cronyism and connection with the philanthropic organizations. But I'm wondering if you can do tell us a little bit more about the different types of groups that you were observing, how they approached reform, and, and what kind of participatory democratic practices that they were seeking to expand other than what, what you've said, the things we might expect, like let's reform the judiciary. Um, to try to set the stage for us of, 
of, of how we distinguish among these different organizations? I'm going to identify two primary buckets of organizations, and I'll explain which types of organizations are within each bucket. So on the one hand, there is a bucket of organizations that appeared to be at the front lines of democracy promotion in the wake of the 2011 uprisings. These include international donors, who many of whom were already in Egypt and increased their budgets for democracy building, and others of which quickly opened offices in Egypt because they perceived a political opportunity. So think USAID, um, the EU, various um, uh, uh, country embassies that that provide funding for civil society, these, these major international donors. Okay, that was one type of organization in the, let's say, the democracy promotion establishment. Another type of organization, international NGOs that are specifically focused on democracy. So here we have organizations such as the National, Endow- uh, National Endowment for Democracy, um, the National Democratic Institute, Freedom House, uh, etc., Also in this group are local Egyptian human rights organizations. And there aren't so many of these, actually. The vast majority of NGOs in Egypt are not human rights organizations. Human rights NGOs are the few organizations in Egypt that actually take on issues related to politics and public policy. So these groups, the local human rights organizations, the international democracy NGOs, and the international donors were really at the front lines of democracy building in Egypt. And what did they do? They promoted a procedural form of democracy that, as I said earlier, focused um, on free and fair elections, representative legislators, independent judiciaries, independent media, etc., the other bucket of organizations, the ones that appeared on the surface to not respond to the uprisings, if, again, we think of the uprisings as a political opportunity for democracy, these organizations constitute a much larger sector of, or portion of Egypt's NGO sector. Um, the local philanthropic foundations, the development NGOs, and also charitable groups and grassroots organizations. The local foundations, um, as I mentioned, were primarily established by business people to fund socioeconomic development NGOs. Those development NGOs worked primarily in fields such as education, job training, health, human services, arts and culture, et cetera. Um, And then grassroots charitable organizations uh, provided a variety of services for members of local communities. And again, these organizations, after the uprisings, remained squarely focused in the realm of socioeconomic development and charitable relief, and therefore, on the surface, appeared to squander what many perceived as this unprecedented political opportunity to promote democracy. And as they, the story unfolds, are not doing that. They're doing something else. They're, they're actually making these small changes that build the capacity for people to participate in democratic practices. Um, they emphasize discussion and debate and collective problem solving, free expression, rights claiming are some of the things that that you name. And 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 then as I read this, I thought, is it more about democracy or is it more about liberalism? Is is their focus? Like it seems like we use that word democracy to mean so many things. But I'm a political theorist, so I can ask this question. But it, it really seems to be about the liberal part of liberal democracy that that is their focus. Precisely. And I often question whether democracy whether the term should even be used in this book. And of course, it's it's in the title. It's scattered throughout the book. And it has to be. It has to be because if you want to speak to people other than political scientists, public policy experts, 
even all of those groups use this word. I mean, it's impossible, but the presidents don't, they use the language of democracy. So I think it makes sense that you are and that you're referring to it. And I don't mean to suggest otherwise. I, I just... I just want to ask you, because I can, about how much of this is about democratic and how much is about liberal. Oh, it's much more about liberal. And you're right. I do, in a sense, have to use that term in part because I'm trying to reach the democracy promotion establishment. And we can talk about the policy implications later. Um, But no, this time and again, my interlocutors said, well, it's it's about freedom it's about liberalism. It's about human dignity. It's not, it's about the values that we often associate with quote unquote democracy, but it's not about democracy. Um, and it's certainly not about the institutions of, um, political democracy. It really is about freedom and justice at, um, at the civic level. And I, I, this is my own pet peeve, but I, I actually think that we lack a language now because the word liberal has been converted to mean in public discourse, the left. So we have neoliberal, we have the left, but we actually don't, I think, have a very good term for having conversation about things like rule of law and rights that... Um, Again, that isn't technical and that can 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 be understood across all of the audiences that your book is trying to reach. I actually want to ask you a little bit about the title, um, which is, I'll remind everybody, Delta Democracy, Pathways to Incremental Civic Revolution in Egypt and Beyond. Can, can you talk a little bit about why you called this Delta Democracy? Sure. The democracy building work of Egypt's development NGOs and local foundations was not meant to bring about a rapid transition to democracy. It was instead meant to coax the country more incrementally um, toward democratic political reform. And the Delta in Delta democracy refers to this mode of change making. So delta in mathematics represents a modicum of difference, hence the incremental. But the symbol for delta resembles the pyramids of Giza, and also Egypt's population pools in the Nile River Delta. So that title is really a triple entendre. So you note that as you're handing the book in for publication, uh, and now that Egypt remains under autocratic rule. But but you say that the ongoing democracy building work of these local developmental development NGOs and foundation deserves our attention. And I, just to really hit it, um, maybe you've already said much of this, but but I'd like you to just focus on so why is this topic so important? Like, what? why does this matter? Because I think it is so easy to dismiss this and not see the vast political um, implications and importance. Let me speak to a few different levels of importance. First, the theoretical importance. Um, much of the literature on civil society in non-democratic contexts paints a pretty gloomy picture. Um, that NGOs and civil society organizations are co-opted or controlled by to such a great extent by ruling regimes that they cannot serve to um, build, let's keep using the term democracy, but with the caveats that we've already discussed, um, that they can't serve to um, build democracy or cultivate democratic political reform. Um, And not only that, that they actually serve to prop up autocracy um, because we know that savvy autocrats use a variety of strategies to use NGOs to their advantage. So this paints, as I said, a pretty gloomy picture. But the case of Egypt shows that even under 
harsh political crackdowns, which we saw just increasingly harsh crackdowns um, through subsequent transitional regimes and now um, the current governing regime of, of Sisi, despite these crackdowns, despite this re- repression, civil society organizations do have some um, maneuverability thanks to their creativity, their resourcefulness, and their culturally resonant understandings of what quote-unquote democracy means and how it can be promoted. So that's, that's the theoretical contribution. There's also a policy contribution um, that U.S. democracy assistance should be retooled to support this more subtle and incremental democracy building work. Uh, Democracy assistance has a poor track record, quite frankly, of bringing about democracy. And it's really come under fire for being incredibly technical and for circulating in a very small and elite milieu of organizations. Um, So the ability of local NGOs to promote democracy, even after many of the democracy promotion organizations pulled out of Egypt, um, offers some lessons for the reform of U.S. democracy assistance. Then I think there's also a wider lesson here. We have seen, um, as you mentioned, in the past decade since the Arab Spring uprisings, resurgent authoritarianism Um, crackdowns on civil society in the Arab world and around the world. A number of of non-democratic rulers have used the coronavirus crisis as an excuse for um, delimiting the space for civil society, for citizens to engage. Um, Yet, we continue to see, despite all of the challenges, we continue to see citizens coming together in the streets conspicuously, but also in smaller, inconspicuous ways, coming together to um, build communities, to fight for values of freedom, of social justice, of economic equality and opportunity. And we see this across political contexts in non-democracies and democracies alike. And so the case of Egypt that's presented in the book is on the one hand specific, Yet on the other hand, I think, really speaks to our current political reality. Um, Your findings seem to point towards changes in how the U.S. and other countries support democratization. And let's pretend for a minute that Joe Biden's foreign policy team listens to new books in political science. What would be the policy prescriptions that emerge from your book such that the aid that is being given is more relevant and sustainable? Well, I certainly expect that the transition team is listening to all of the networks in, um, or all of the channels in the New Books Network. Um, but as for this one, if if they are indeed listening and interested in reforming democracy assistance, let me lay out a few ideas. First, recognize that democracy and economics are tightly intertwined. When we talk about democracy, we need to talk not only about political reform, but also about economic and social justice. We need to talk more broadly about human dignity. So this means de-siloing grant-making budgets. Currently, international donors have budgets for democracy promotion and good governance, and separately, budgets and program areas for economic development, and specifically within that, um, program areas for education and job training and health All of these different program areas, democracy building, education, health and human services, arts and culture, they're all intertwined. So can some of these grant-making silos be broken down? Um, And maintaining a separate democracy promotion strategy not only disrespects how transformative change uh, takes place, but it's also very dangerous for organizations to accept because it draws attention to the fact that they are working on democratic political reform. So de-silo grant making. Second, seek out new types of grantees. So much democracy assistance is actually given to international NGOs who are based in target countries. Some goes to local human rights organizations. But as 
the book shows, there's a much wider array of organizations that are working to build democracy at grassroots levels, development NGOs, local foundations, community philanthropies, et cetera. These should be eligible for grants that are related to democratic political reform. Third, reform application and reporting requirements. The application forms are so technical. Um, They require organizations to structure their applications like business plans and to create logic models. Well, how do we build a logic model about building democracy? Um, It shuts out so many grassroots organizations, locally embedded organizations from being eligible for these grants in the first place. So while certain application and reporting procedures will always be there, particularly for federally funded donor agencies, um, can these agencies work more closely with local organizations to act as co-learners in the democracy building project? And fourth, drive values, not institutions. As I've mentioned, so much democracy assistance seeks to form national reform, national political institutions, and, and free and fair elections. And yet, around the world, citizens are calling for the values of democracy, but not for U.S. democratic institutions. And let's be frank, the U.S. democratic institutions have come under real pressure lately, and the U.S. has lost some standing to promote its democratic um, uh, institutions. And so focusing more on the values that really resonate around the world um, could be helpful. Thanks, Catherine. That's, no, it's, uh, it's, it's so interesting. This book has many audiences. It is an academic book that gives this sort of granular uh, understanding of of actions at the grassroots level and their impact but it also has this very prescriptive uh, outcome suggestions since the audience is so wide I, I feel like this is an unfair question because the pandemic has made it very hard for authors to engage their audiences. But do you have a sense yet of of what the response to the book has been from some of these audiences? That's a great question, Susan. Um, I have received feedback from folks in the policy establishment as well as scholars. But you know who's a, whose feedback I value most? And that is the feedback from my interlocutors throughout the Middle East. And the message of this book and the findings of this book have really resonated. I was nervous about publishing this book because, out of fear that it could endanger the organizations and the leaders with whom I spoke. And yet all of those leaders urged me to publish this book and said, please, this story must be told. We want the we want your readers to understand the work that we are doing. Um, and I find a similar response in my current field work in Palestine, where there's a very different fight. It's not about democracy, um, but the work of, of local social change actors and grassroots organizations um, is robust and needs to be valued and recognized for its significance locally and for its connection to what I mentioned earlier, those global social movements. I'll never forget a young woman with whom I was speaking in Palestine said, look, we have our own fight here, but we also feel connected despite all of the disconnections, right? Um, We also feel connected to youth around the world who are taking to the streets for these values. And so I think that the the message of the book that that local people understand how to build change and they should be leading these charges, not international donors. um, That's the message that seems to resonate. No, and 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 you do such a good job of of showing the interrelationships. I, I want to make sure that all of the listeners get 
an understanding of everything that is in this remarkable book. And and I will just say, uh, you know, I don't do this kind of work. I loved the book. It was very, very easy for me to read because the prose is beautiful and the explanations are clear and vocabulary is dealt with in such a sort of sophisticated yet uh, non-insider way. So I just... uh, I, I loved the writing and I, I want as many people as possible to read the book. I, so just to give a slight overview, so in, in the first chapter, you give this account of what Egypt's NGO sector looked like under Hosni Mubarak. And, and, and there, I think we really get this sort of powerful understanding of what happens in 30 years um, under autocratic rule. And, and you show how Egypt's NGO sector sort of works in that um, environment. Um, and there's so much detail, but you've you've hit some of it, so I'm not going to push you on that. And then in chapter two, you talk about how the 2011 uprisings created these opportunities and challenges. And as you've already noted, you, you, you talk about these two sets of donors, the Western aid organizations and the Egyptian philanthropic organizations and how they responded after Mubarak was was removed, um, I, I want to ask you a little bit about Chapter Three, which is which focuses on how the Western democracy playbook, which you've also described, you know, had these strengths and weaknesses. And well, actually, you know what, you, you you've done that really well too. So l- let's do the, the two chapters I think were just the most amazing, which are chapters four and five. They present the strategies that were used by Egypt's philanthropic organizations, foundations, and development NGOs to build democracy. So could you just tell us a little bit more about the local quality, about the collaborative nature of this approach, and, and how it fared once Sisi was installed as president in 2014, and the government passed restrictions that really affected foundations' activities. Absolutely. So the the strategy of local organizations, and not all local organizations, let me stress here that I really am focused on Egypt's local philanthropic foundations, contemporary grant-making foundations, that is, and development NGOs. This is, um, it's not all NGOs in Egypt, um, but a subset. So the strategies that they used were marked by two key characteristics. Number one, um, they wove, quote unquote, democracy building into existing socioeconomic development projects. This respected the deeply intertwined nature of politics and economics in Egypt. Number two, they promoted as I said earlier, this substantive form of democracy. And there were three levels at which this um, took place. Number one, through discussion, debate, and collective problem solving. Um, so you know, we, take, we take many of these practices for granted in established democracy, coming together in a public sphere to discuss um, community needs and priorities and to work collectively to implement uh, solutions. Um, But these, in the words of Sheila Carapico, a a political scientist um, who has studied both democracy aid and and, uh, specifically uh, context within the Middle East, you know, these, in her words, are brazen acts of insubordination um, in non-democratic context. So this was was one level at which that substantive democracy uh, materialized and, and was promoted through through public discussion, debate, and problem solving. It This also drew attention to government neglect, I should say. So number two was free expression. And this um, transpired largely, although not exclusively, through arts and culture. Um, arts and culture were everywhere after Mubarak's ouster. Uh, graffiti in the streets, um, public arts and culture festivals where people came together to uh, express themselves freely and express their visions for the future of Egypt, visions that citizens had really not had much control over in the past. So this also was 
was very political. And, and of course, free expression being a critical underpinning of democracy and of liberal democracy. Um, and then also rights claiming, understanding um, basic human rights, the right to high quality education, to high quality health care, to basic community infrastructure that was often lacking, and then to um, be able to uh, to to go to local government officials and and demand those rights. Um, I want to point to another political scientist, Diana Fu, who has studied um, atomized mo- um, uh, mobilization and activism in the context of China, where NGOs coached um, local citizens to to demand their rights to. Um, from local officials, but where the NGOs were really in the background. And here, NGOs, uh, in the case of Egypt, um, were, were a bit more prominent in the facilitation process of, of those. And because these activities were always intertwined and interwoven into the socioeconomic development work that already existed and that was directly in line with government priorities, these organizations were able to persist even as the political environment just became more and more and more repressive. It started in late 2011 with the raids of international NGOs. There was the infamous NGO trial at which uh, 43 NGO employees were put on trial and ultimately charged with operating organizations illegally. Um, it just got worse and worse as human rights activists were stopped with travel bans and um, asset freezes. And, and it continues to this day. Just recently, um, three staff members of the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights were detained after meeting with um, some of their European counterparts. So the climate is just awful. And yet, as late as 2017, which was my last visit to the to the field, these organized the development NGOs were persisting in cultivating democracy at grassroots levels. I'm so glad you brought up Diana Fu's book for for two reasons. First, um, I interviewed Diana this year. Uh, the book is, by the way, mobilizing without the masses, control and contention in China, and it's a it's a Cambridge University book from 2018. Uh, first, because it's really related, and also because I, I think that it reflects uh, the kind of generous spirit that you have in the book and in the communication that you had with me in terms of acknowledging the work done by others. We're all we're all together in this, and so um, I really appreciate you calling out Diana Fu, and I recommend that podcast to listeners. Uh, she was terrific. You've already mentioned that you're working in Palestine, but I wonder if you just say a little bit more about what your current research um, is is on so we can look forward to it. Oh, I'd be delighted to. Thank you. Um, there's a fairly expansive literature on the NGOization of civil society in Palestine. That is the transformation of Palestine's civic sphere from one that was rooted in self-help groups, community organizing, um, social movements, et cetera, that undergirded uh, the the Antifada. Um, But then with the, particularly, I should say, with the signing of the Oslo Accords and the influx of foreign aid to Palestine, we saw the rise of a very large, bureaucratic, and very lucrative NGO sector in Palestine. Um, The highest paying jobs in Palestine tend to be those in the NGO sector. Um, Wow. Yep. And these organizations were seen as marginalizing um, a culture of activism, a culture of volunteerism, because now one gets paid to volunteer in Palestine. If if one volunteers, quote unquote, for an NGO, one expects pocket money um, and 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 other sorts of perks. And 
my early research uh, around 2015-16 confirmed this NGOization of the civic sphere. But everyone, and again, this was, this illuminates the value of ethnography. Everyone with whom I spoke said, you know what? Yes, the foreign aid has been destructive, but you've got to talk to the youth because Mm -hmm. they are mobilizing in really innovative ways. They're creating these grassroots groups that are rejecting foreign funding and that are mobilizing large number of individuals around activities such as running, hiking, community yoga, arts and culture, um, charity, uh, again, activities, farming, agriculture is a big one, um, activities that seem really just benign, yet have so much meaning in the Palestinian context when we think about rights claiming. And so those are the organizations that I, uh, and the groups that, uh, that I'm currently studying, how, um, you know, the types of org- the activities that they're doing. Um, I spend a lot of time hiking and running and, um, and farming. And, uh, and, and, but more importantly, not just the activities, but what do these activities mean in well, a struggle for liberation? Uh, when you finish this work, you'll have to come back to new books on political science. I know we could all fight over your interdisciplinary work and maybe, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll find different hosts, but what a fantastic, uh, project that sounds like, and I can't wait to talk to you about it. I, I want to note that we're recording this on December 18th, 2020. And as you noted to me in an email, yesterday marked the 10th anniversary of the Tunisian uprisings <clears throat> and the Egyptian uh, anniversary, 10-year anniversary will be next month on January 25th. So it, it couldn't be a better time to read and think about your book and the issues that it raises. And I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Catherine E. Harold. Uh, she's the author of Delta Democracy, Pathways to Incremental Civic Revolution in Egypt and Beyond. It's available on the Oxford University Press website through the ordinary channels. And we're encouraging people to use Bookshop, uh, which supports brick and mortar bookstores. Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about your terrific book. Thank you, Susan. It's been an honor and a really fun conversation.